Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the original Frankenstein from 1931. The studio was Universal Pictures. The release date was November 21st, 1931. The running time, 71 minutes, and of course, it was in black and white. The budget, $260,000, and the box office, well, it was a huge smash, just like Dracula, and supposedly made $12 million, which is the equivalent to $203 million today. It was the top-grossing film of 1931. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it 3.5 out of 4 stars, and his quick little synopsis is, Definitive monster movie, with Colin Clive as the ultimate mad scientist, creating a man-made being... Boris Karloff, but inadvertently giving him a criminal brain. It's creaky at times and cries for a musical score, but it's still impressive, as is Karloff's performance in the role that made him a star. The long-censored footage, restored in 1987, enhances the impact of several key scenes, including the drowning of a little girl. It was based on Mary Shelley's novel and followed by Bride of Frankenstein. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 100% fresh, from 46 reviews. Their critics' consensus is still unnerving to this day. Frankenstein adroitly explores the fine line between genius and madness and features Boris Karloff's legendary frightening performance as the monster. So like Dracula, my first exposure to the Universal Monster movies was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I've said that many times on this podcast, but from that film, I wanted to see all the classic monsters, and Frankenstein was probably the most jarring as I'll get into a bit later. The Universal Frankenstein series as a whole is the only one that gets better with each sequel. The other monsters like Dracula and the Invisible Man, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Creature from the Black Lagoon, they all peak with the original films. 
All right, let's get into the main cast. You have Colin Clive, who plays Henry Frankenstein. Frankenstein would only be Clive's second film role, and sadly, he would not have a long career at all due to his much-publicized alcoholism. And he would die in 1937 at the age of 37. Boris Karloff, of course, plays the monster, and Karloff had been acting in silent films since the early 1920s, and he appeared in a number of films, but playing Frankenstein, playing the monster, would make him a star, and while other actors would later play the monster, Karloff was the standard for everyone that came after him, much like Bela Lugosi when he played Dracula. Karloff's performance as the monster is one of the greatest, and he never even has to speak. His performance set the standard for the monster for all future adaptations, and the makeup for the monster was the most innovative and groundbreaking for film, especially at the time. And there are other actors I will cover, like Dwight Fry and Edward Van Sloan, Mae Clark, and John Bowles. The director, James Whale, and this was only Whale's third film, but he was a rising director at the time, which made him desirable for Universal Studios, and I'll get more into that later. Whale would go on to direct the original Invisible Man with Claude Rains, and then the sequel to Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So the original novel was first written, of course, by Mary Shelley, who was only 18 at the time. The inspiration of her story came from being sequestered during a storm, and then a writing contest between her, her eventual husband named Percy, and the English poet Lord Byron to see who could write the best horror story. And this premise eventually was the opening scene in Bride of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's vision, which was written in 1821, is much different than what modern audiences would come to know and expect from the Frankenstein tale. Shelley left the bringing to life of the monster purposely vague, which is somewhat common for reading a novel. For example, it could have been a magic potion or something supernatural which caused the monster to come alive. Definitely not the technology and science used in the film. Her story was perfect for stage adaptations, which occurred a few years later after the novel was published. The film adaptation from 1931 was most reminiscent of the 1926 staged version by Peggy Webling, which actually is similar to what happened with Dracula. The story in the novel from Bram Stoker wasn't used in the film as much as the play adaptation. Interestingly enough, on stage, the actor Hamilton Dean would have to use different colors of makeup and almost look like a rougher version of the Henry Frankenstein character, almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde trade-off. Unlike Dracula, the monster was a more sympathetic character. So once producer Carl Lemley Jr. had a major hit with Dracula on film, Frankenstein was a natural next step, and he didn't have much convincing to do to get the film made. So Bela Lugosi was actually the first choice to play the monster. Robert Flory was to direct the film and wanted to use some of the ideas from the story Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He wanted to use this in the Frankenstein's tale since Caligari was one of his favorite movies. The idea of mind control, madness, and murder. Nobody is sure why Flory was taken off the film, but he was replaced, of course, by James Whale. Whale had directed a popular stage play prior to Frankenstein with Colin Clive. And Whale was considered an up-and-coming director, as I had said before, and this was probably the main reason Universal wanted someone like him to direct the film. So Bela Lugosi wasn't interested in playing the mute monster because he felt his talents were displayed better for the Dracula character. Also, he felt he was far too handsome to be made up to an un unrecognizable monster. Ironically, he would play Frankenstein years later along with the assistant Igor. James Whale was instrumental in bringing Boris Karloff into the role. Whale saw Karloff at the studio and was fascinated by his bone structure. 
They had a short meeting and felt Karloff would be perfect for the role and suggested a screen test. Karloff accepted without realizing what the role was. Karloff joked that he was a bit hurt that his look suggested that he was meant to play a monster, as he was wearing a dapper suit at the time and dressed very nicely the day he met Whale. The makeup was done by Jack Pierce, who was an icon as a makeup artist and would be known as the artist for all the early monster films. All of his makeup ideas were from his own out-of-the-box genius. There was no blueprint for any of these characters. And what he created on his own was groundbreaking and really set the standard for the future of makeup artistry. However, in addition to Pierce, credit also had to be given to James Whale when it came to the look of the monster, specifically as his input was equally as important in the final outcome. Whale had sketches which were implemented into the makeup design, but Pierce actually had to make it work. The flat head and the easily replaceable brain, that was Whale's idea. But the endurance of Boris Karloff cannot be understated as the heavy layered makeup and makeshift mask was not easy to sit through. And the smells were like toxic and very uncomfortable to fit on your face. Plus, it was all difficult to remove. And then on top of all that, he had to perform on camera. <laughs> Not many actors could have pulled it off as brilliant as Karloff. Plus, it took three to three and a half hours to put on and many hours to take it off. Plus, he had to wear these heavy boots and this other outfit, which was incredibly heavy, and they were black, and they were filming in August. <laughs> Karloff actually really suffered for the role and ended up having back issues, which included three back surgeries due to the damage that was caused from this role, like when he was carrying Colin Clive around in the tower scenes. Karloff did add suggestions to the look of the monster as he felt in the first phase the monster looked too, quote, alive, especially in his eyes. So they added droopy eyelids to give more of a dead feel to the monster. Karloff also had a bridge on the right side of his mouth and removed it so he could suck in his cheek, and that gave that side of his cheek kind of a sunken-in look. And because the makeup was contoured to Karloff's face and structure, he could get more out of the visual performance because it wasn't a mask. It was actually his face. Much of the gothic look of the film was kept from the initial Robert Flory vision. Interestingly, Colin Clive's real life was similar to his Henry Frankenstein character. He sort of had a Jekyll and Hyde personality, especially when he was drinking, which was often. His personal turmoil seemed to mirror Henry Frankenstein. This was a worry about casting him initially for the role, but James Whale knew him and got the best out of him for the film. May Clark also worked with Whale and adored him and thought he was a directing genius. This was her favorite film role and would eventually playfully act out the monster parts when she was at a retirement home towards the end of her life. So the Fritz character, which of course is the great Dwight Fry, was not in the original novel and came from the stage adaptations. And James Whale adored Dwight Fry and used him in five films after Frankenstein. Though Fry was typecast as over-the-top characters in horror films, he was perfect. He was so good in those roles. Karloff never had an issue being associated with the monster. He felt that if an actor was lucky enough to be thought of by a great majority of audiences for one of their roles, then the mission was accomplished. He felt it was the luckiest role he ever had. All right, let's get into the film. So it begins much differently than most films of the era with Edward Van Sloan, who plays Dr. Waldman. He also played Van Helsing in the original Dracula. He gives a warning to audiences about to watch the tale of Frankenstein. How do you do? Mr. Carl Lindley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. 
We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. So the prologue was really a warning from Universal Pictures as they believe this film might truly be too shocking and horrifying for some audiences at the time, especially during the height of the Great Depression. So today, it's easy to become jaded in modern film viewing, but Frankenstein was truly groundbreaking in the horror genre and was truly terrifying to watch in the theater for the first time. So then you get the standard opening title cards. They appear in a very cool illusion of an effect of showing eyes on these spinning wheel of sorts, uh, though you can't actually see the wheel. It has like a hypnotic effect. It's also very cool that in the credits, the monster is credited to, well, a question mark. At the end credits, then Boris Karloff is displayed. We then cut to a funeral gathering as a body is being laid to rest at a cemetery. In the background, two men, Colin Clive and Dwight Fry, are hiding, waiting for the burial to be completed. Once the grave digger, or in this case the barrier, completes his task, the two men appear to dig up the body. During the digging, and I noticed this while re-watching the film, or maybe I, I noticed it before and just didn't realize it, there's almost a Grim Reaper figure in the background of the cemetery. It's almost like a scarecrow, but much more evil. This could totally be an album cover, uh, so be sure to look out for it the next time you watch this film. So a microphone was placed in the coffin uh, that it was used during the funeral scene to amplify the sound of the grave dirt hitting the lid. So the two men take the dug-up coffin on a trailer and head towards their destination. While they're on the trail, they discover a man who has either hanged himself or by someone else, and he's definitely dead. Colin Clive instructs his hunchback assistant, we assume at this point he's an assistant, uh, to cut down the body and take it with him. As imagined, the neck of the hanged man is broken, meaning he's brain dead, which makes him useless for the purposes of the grave robbers. Okay, so it's easy to watch this film today and not be phased, you know, by the digging up of corpses or seeing a hanged body. But keep in mind, back in 1931, this was not commonplace, and it was very shocking to see this on a giant screen. We then cut to Goldstadt Medical College, where Dr. Waldman, that's Edward Van Sloan, is lecturing his class about the brain. In one jar is a normal brain, and he describes the shape and form of it. In the other jar, it's a criminal brain, as he describes the differences physically between the two. And in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, here we have one of the most perfect specimens of the human brain that has ever come to my attention at the university. And here, the abnormal brain of the typical criminal. Observe, ladies and gentlemen, the scarcity of convolutions on the frontal lobe as compared to that of the normal brain, and the distinct degeneration of the middle frontal lobe. All of these degenerate characteristics check amazingly with the case history of the dead man before us, whose life was one of brutality, of violence, and murder. Both of these jars will remain here for your further inspection. Thank you, gentlemen. The class is dismissed. 
The class is dismissed, and the hunchback assistant waits until the classroom is empty, as he is tasked with stealing a brain from the college. He sneaks through the back window, and as the clumsy person he is, he scares himself by bumping into a skeleton. He then takes the jar with the regular brain, and attempts to leave before being startled by a loud noise, and then he drops the jar. The brain matter goes all over the place. He's panicked, and so he quickly grabs the other brain, the abnormal one, doesn't realize it, and then he hurries off. We then cut to a woman named Elizabeth, played by Mae Clark, who is visited by her friend Victor, John Bowles. Elizabeth has received a letter from her fiancé, Henry Frankenstein, who has been away from her for over four months because he's on a research project. As we now know, Henry is the man who has been robbing graves. He doesn't inform Elizabeth exactly what he's working on, just that it's very important, even more important than their relationship. He's now living in an abandoned castle conducting experiments. So Victor tells Elizabeth that he ran into Henry not too long before the letter, and that he was incredibly secretive about his work and was kind of short with him. And as a typical film trope, Victor offers to help Elizabeth find Henry, not because he really cares about Henry, but he's obviously in love with Elizabeth. You know, the hang-around guy who keeps waiting for his chance. Elizabeth decides to accompany Victor to visit Dr. Wallman, who is Henry's professor in college, to get his opinion of Henry's strange behavior. Dr. Wallman divulges that Henry was a brilliant but very erratic student and left college suddenly without warning. Henry was conducting dangerous experiments that were far too advanced than the college was able to handle, like the use of human corpses for experiments in order to revive them from the dead. This was the reason for Henry getting fed up and going out on his own to conduct his own experiments. Dr. Waldman takes Elizabeth and Victor up to the castle where Henry is conducting his experiments. We then discover his hunched-over assistant, and he's named Fritz. Most casual viewers think that the assistant was always named Igor. That didn't actually come until a few years later, and of course was played by Bela Lugosi. In the original tale, his name was Fritz. The laboratory for Frankenstein is the blueprint for all classic horror and sci-fi films. The castle setting, the wires, the pulleys, the noises, and the bolts of light. It's all here, and of course, it's a stormy night with plenty of thunder and lightning. Frankenstein has reassembled a human corpse with the abnormal brain that Fritz stole from the college. This storm will be magnificent. All the electrical secrets of heaven. And this time we're ready. Hey, Fritz? Ready. There's nothing to fear. Joke. No blood, no decay, just a few stitches. And look, here's the final touch. The brain you stole, Fritz. Yes. Think of it, the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands. With my own hands. Let's have one final test. Throw the switches. Just as Henry is about to do one final test, Dr. Walding, Elizabeth, and Victor arrive to the castle. Henry is agitated and he tries to get rid of him, but they refuse to leave with the storm outside and instead lets them watch him perform his master experiment. Dr. Valman, I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world, and night you shall have your proof. At first I experimented only with dead animals, 
and then a human heart which I kept beating for three weeks. But now I'm going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life. That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. Special effects are really terrific, especially for 1931, and even today they hold up extremely well. The sound effects are what makes everything come together, however, and Colin Clive absolutely losing his mind is why the film continues to get the accolades it deserves. How many times has It's Alive been repeated over and over throughout history? The next day, Elizabeth and Victor visit Henry's father, Baron Frankenstein, who doesn't understand what his son is doing and is concerned that Henry is seeing another woman in place of Elizabeth. Nope, he's actually two-timing with a monster, old man. Henry is incredibly enamored with himself after his experiment was a supposed success. However, Dr. Walding throws a bit of cold water on his ego as he doesn't realize he used the criminal's brain for his experiment. Come and sit down, Doctor. You must be patient. Do you expect perfection at once? This creature of yours should be kept under guard. Mark my words, he will prove dangerous. 
dangerous. Poor old Bowman. Have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous? Where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? You never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars, or to know what causes the trees to bud, and what changes a darkness into light? But if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy. You're young, my friend. Your success has intoxicated you. Wake up and look facts in the face. Here we have a fiend whose brain... Whose brain must be given time to develop. It's a perfectly good brain, Doctor. Well, you ought to know. It came from your own laboratory. The brain that was stolen from my laboratory was a criminal brain. Oh, well, after all, it's only a piece of dead tissue. I'm astonishingly sane, Doctor. Patience, patience. I believe in this monster, as you call it. And if you don't, well, you must leave me alone. Elizabeth believes in me. My father never believes in anyone. I've got to experiment further. He's only a few days old, remember. So far, he's been kept in complete darkness. Wait till I bring him into the light. Here he comes. Let's turn out the light. The scene between Henry and Dr. Walding was included later in the filming. It was not in the original script, but it's a vital scene as it gets into the mind of Henry and why he's experimenting. Whale supposedly wrote this scene. The reveal of seeing the monster is absolutely movie magic as he enters with his back turned and then does a slow turn to face the camera. I can only imagine folks seeing this on a giant theater for the first time, and the makeup on Karloff is truly terrifying. Plus, he rolls the eyes in the back of his head so it looks like they're completely white. It's truly stunning, even today. The monster can understand basic commands, and he reacts to sunlight. However, what he doesn't like is fire, as Fritz finds out when he races in with the torch in his hand. The monster is incredibly strong, and when Henry and Dr. Walling try to subdue him, they can't as he throws him away with ease. Dr. Walding eventually hits the monster on the back of the head, and they tie him up before chaining him in the cellar of the castle. The noises that Karloff makes are awesome. You can really appreciate how much the early horror films essentially set the standard for every other film made in the genre. Fritz is a complete imbecile and decides to antagonize the monster by whipping him and threatening him to burn him with a torch instead of calming him down. Of course, Fritz eventually goes too far and the monster gets his revenge on him. You hear screams in the basement from Fritz. Henry and Dr. Walding run down to see what the noises are and they find Fritz hanging by a rope dead as the monster got a hold of him. And I gotta say, fuck Fritz, he had it coming to him. The character, I mean. I love Dwight Fry. Henry is now distraught that his creation isn't going how he planned. Dr. Walding convinces him they have to kill the monster. They both try to inject the monster with a knockout drug, which they finally do it, but it's a struggle. And to make matters worse, Elizabeth and the Baron have arrived at the castle. And Victor warns them of this, and they decide to hide the monster. 
Elizabeth and the Baron find Henry lying on the floor from exhaustion. He agrees to be taken back home to recover, and Dr. Walding assures Henry that he will destroy the monster. <laughs> the next scene, we cut to the laboratory, where Dr. Walding is conducting experiments before he kills the monster. As it turns out, the monster is actually getting increasingly stronger with every injection. Walding decides to dissect the monster's brain once and for all. As brilliant as the doctor is, he made a fatal mistake. He didn't restrain the monster. The monster awakens, and as the doctor puts his ear to the monster's chest, the monster strangles Walden to death. The monster escapes the castle and is now roaming free in town like a rabid animal. All the while, Henry is recuperating in luxury at his mansion and prepares for his upcoming wedding with Elizabeth. It's funny, as I get older, the more I despise Dr. Frankenstein. As a kid, you sort of buy into the bad monster vibe, especially in the first film. But now, you really wish Henry was the one who had the lobotomy. And by the way, some might miss it, but there is a line that will eventually be used in a very famous film over 40 years later, as Baron Frankenstein gives a toast to his son, the young Frankenstein. They also toast to the House of Frankenstein, which will be the title of a sequel as well. So while the Frankensteins and the town celebrate the engagement, we get one of the most infamous and shocking scenes even today in cinema history as the monster is wandering in the woods and arrives at a house, and he finds a little girl named Maria playing at a lake near her home. Her father leaves to go into town for a bit and leaves Maria alone to play outside. <laughs> yep, it was a much different era of parenting. You stay here, Maria. I'll just take a look at my traps. Now we'll go to the village and have a grand time, huh? <laughs> Won't be long, Daddy. Oh, no, no. Hans goes by, tell him I'll be back soon. Hmm? Daddy, won't you stay and play with me a little while? I'm too busy, darling. You stay and play with the kitty, huh? Bye, Daddy. Goodbye. Be a good girl now. Come on, kitty. Who are you? I'm Maria. Will you play with me? Would you like one of my flowers? So, of course, the monster didn't understand the difference between the floating flower petals and a human being when, you know, when he ran out of flowers to toss into the water, 
His mind is very primitive, and he thought he could simply throw Maria in the lake and she would float like the flowers. It's one of the only times the monster actually shows remorse or fear in the actions because he's truly upset he just harmed someone. In a panic, he rushes off without trying to save Maria. Boris Karloff asks James Whale if they could change this famous scene and instead have the monster just innocently play with the girl to give some empathy to the character. And Whale insisted it was necessary for the arc of the story. It had to play out that way and needed to give a big enough shock to the viewers to validate the eventual outcome of the story and the monster's demise. The famous scene was actually cut from home video and TV versions for years until the late 80s when it was finally restored. So the little girl who played Maria didn't initially sink when she was thrown into the lake for the first take. Whale needed to film the shot again and asked the little girl if she could have anything, what would it be to film the shot another time? And the little girl said, a dozen hard-boiled eggs, and her, because her mother always had her on a diet. So they filmed the scene that you see in the film, and Whale sent her two dozen. So we go back to the film, and this is where the action and suspense really kicks in for the final 15 minutes of the film. It's crazy how much is packed in a very short film. It's only 71 minutes. If you haven't seen the original classic, it's a really a must-watch because it set the standard for almost every other monster and horror tale that came after it, just like the original Dracula. And while Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein are arguably better films, the original is a brilliant work of art, and you should actually see it in order. All right, let's get into the fun facts. Boris Karloff's shoes weighed 13 pounds each. Oof. The film was banned in Kansas upon, upon its original release on the grounds that it exhibited cruelty intended to debase morals. Okay. It's probably still banned in Kansas. So just like Bela Lugosi and his arrogance of turning down the role of the monster, John Carradine turned down the part of the monster because he considered himself too highly trained to be reduced to playing monsters. All right, we have two guests that are big time, Universal Monster Movie Enthusiasts, special guest Joseph Staub, and original guest from the start of the podcast, Malin. They both talk about their love of the original Frankenstein, and I will be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Joseph Staub. Welcome back, Joseph. Thanks again for having me, Brian. No problem. Okay, so you we know you love your universal horror films. We talked about Dracula a few months ago, and now it's time to get into the next of the Universal Pictures movies, and that is Frankenstein. Before we actually get into that one, I, I'm assuming you've seen all of the Universal uh, Frankenstein pictures, all, all the sequels? Yes, yes. So wait, did you watch it in chronological order or did you did you jump around? Like, how, how did you watch those films? So I definitely saw the first one first. OK. And I'm pretty sure I saw Bride second. Mm -hmm. From there on, it gets a little bit sort of iffy. I think probably the third one I saw was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Ah, OK. Yeah. Um, from then, it's kind of hard because I, I, I've, I've seen them all multiple times. So it kind of runs together in my head. Mm -hmm. I probably saw Sun and then ghost and then the, the the other three just kind of run into my head with all the frankenstein meets the wolfman and the two house movies sure um I, those are the ones i probably saw last the ones i probably they're the ones i watched the least as well but um i definitely saw the first one first okay so that's good so you kind of you went in order you weren't like swayed into liking one more than the other so that that's good so but we'll stick we'll eventually talk a little bit about the other ones but we'll, we'll stick with the original first so by this time have you watched like other horror movies or was this kind of like were you still early in your horror film viewing 
this was probably around the middle of when I was really getting into horror. So the first horror movies I really ever watched that were like true horror movies, not like the kind of haha comedy horror movies that everyone watches as a kid. Right. Was probably the Nightmare on Elm Street series. That was the first ones. Those were the first ones I remember getting on DVD. Okay. Uh, so like I started getting into a lot of the slashers first, and then I started to go back and just I have always had a love for black and white cinema, mm-hmm. and from hearing a lot about the Universal films and how much they influence everything that came later, I went back and I watched. I think this was probably the first Universal film that I watched. This was way before, like I like I said in the Dracula review, I have the big thirty movie box set. That right. One of my prized possessions is I. I I watched those movies to death. This was before I had that. I think I probably watched this. I'd probably say around age 10. Okay. That was probably when I first got into the universal series and really just sort of. And once, once I watched the first Frankenstein movie, I dug headfirst into the universals, mm. especially like the original, like the, the big, what I got like six or seven or whatever they would call it the Dracula Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein Invisible Wolf Man, Man. yeah Dummy, Wolf Man mm-hmm. and like those like the 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 big ones right um so like those I really got into those but then when I got the box set probably five or six years later was when I really went into all the sequels to all of the movies I I think I've probably seen all thirty movies in that box set even the weird werewolf ones from the thirties <laughs> which. God help you if you've seen those. <laughs> like that, the, the Henry Hall one. and Yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Werewolf of London and the She-Wolf of London, yeah. Yep. Not necessarily <laughs> the highest recommendation on those, but we're not talking about those. No, and eventually we will, because I have the same box set, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there. So the reason I asked the question is because when I fir- my first introduction to, to the horror films were of any kind what was happening because tell me frankenstein that was kind of jokey it's a good entry point you know it's probably like seven or eight and then and then i started to watch dracula and frankenstein and i found them scary not like terrifying terrifying but i definitely found it scary so did you find like the original frankenstein scary in any way i i did with with a sort of with an asterisk sure. mainly because before i had seen any of the actual frankenstein movies i had seen young frankenstein oh uh, okay yeah which numerous callbacks to this movie with to bride to son son yep to all three of the original trilogy with boris karloff and it kind of took the punch out of it a little bit Mm -hmm. there were still scenes that kind of definitely kind of got to me with um especially the scene with the monster killing um dr waldman and the scene where they find fritz hanging Mm -hmm. and some of those scenes is still kind of gut punched me even after having seen young Frankenstein. Cause a lot of like a lot of the big scenes from this movie, it, it kind of took the wind out of a little bit with the, the birthing scene to begin with. Right. And the, the graveyard scenes and especially uh, with the scene of the girl, mm-hmm. uh, the young girl, yeah. which that, that completely took the wind out of that scene. Young Frankenstein did. Uh, but even then, there was definitely still points to this movie that, when I saw them for the first time, really affected me, especially at the age of 10 when I saw it. Yeah. Uh, it's still, this movie, to this day, ranks very highly to me. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the 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 little girl scene because there were after this came out, they would they re-edited the film yes. to kind of eliminate some of that. And so I want to say when I first saw this on television, it didn't have that scene. And so then when I saw it maybe a few years later on video, it did have that scene. I was like, whoa, like because yeah, it, it was jarring. It wasn't until like the '93 home video release, I think, where yeah. they added it back in with like when. I, lo- I love that commercial for all the VHSs with the really, really cool covers. I love those covers for like the yeah. 93 with the, like, the hand-drawn covers. All those uh-huh. are so cool. Oh, they that, are. Was when they, that was when they added because they, they, they printed it on the cover. The, the unedited Frankenstein. Right. Like the original, the uncut, all this stuff because they added a couple things. I think they added um, the, the line, uh, by God, now I know what it feels like to be to God. To be God, yeah. Back yeah, because yeah, that would have been blasphemy. Yes. Yeah. Because I, I I think I watched a YouTube video one time of like showing the edits from earlier home video releases mm. compared to the '93 where they cut before that line or it, it went silent right around that line and then where they cut the little girl scene mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because it's like whoa knowing nothing but the unedited version it was really jarring yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I always found interesting is the whole Igor thing. Like everyone just assumes that in the Frankenstein lore, it's always Igor and they forget that, it, you know, um, it's really Fritz. The guy's name is Fritz played by Dwight Fry. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah, I think especially especially with the addition of Bela Lugosi's Igor in yes. Sun and Ghost. I think that really is where people get confused because even though Igor is a hunchback, he is nothing like what people think of the Igor character to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, and then you have Fritz, and everyone's just like, whoa, who the heck's this Fritz dude running yeah. around? I'd... Yeah, because they always... What's a Fritz? <laughs> what's a Fritz, and, and why is he doing what they did in Young Frankenstein? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's Igor's well, well, job. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> At least uh, Fritz, Fritz's hump didn't keep changing places. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, eventually when we get to Young Frankenstein, I can't wait. But uh, I'll go back. Did you did you eventually read Mary Shelley's novel for Frankenstein? Yes. Okay, and uh, and for it's actually very for a high school class. I did. Oh wow. Okay. So and then how did you like it? Because I'm assuming you already saw the the film. Yes, I had seen the film much probably six or seven years before I had read the book. The book was definitely different. I mean, definitely the whole the diary entries. Yeah. And the the monster talking and the whole the whole difference between the character of the monster in the book and the character of the monster in the movie and the character of Dr. Frankenstein in the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. Very different. And the plot is completely different. And it's just it was really, really interesting. Yeah, and it's amazing that she was she was basically a teenager or, you know, just turned 18 when she wrote this. So what what a, what a talent to come up with basically an iconic story. And and so you, you kind of also people watch this now and they probably almost roll their eyes. But I mean, it is the foundation of this tale that has been told, you know, thousands of times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I also like in the beginning with the opening credits, because old films always had opening credits where they, they show you who's actually in the film. Uh, they put the question mark. Question mark yeah. yeah, that's great. And at the end, they put the real name. I love that. Yeah. Apparently, I had read in some prints of the film, even the end credits had a question mark. Oh, really? That's I, I, had, interesting. I had read some early prints of the film. I think some of the uh, the previews had a, the question mark at the ending. But I think. Like like we've like we've seen uh, 
articles written about thing, even movies like The Exorcist and Psycho, mm-hmm. how it has an effect on the audiences. Right. The movie was so terrifying to these pre-screening audiences that the studio mandated that they put Karloff's name in the end credits. Ah, because so it really wasn't a monster. Yeah, for real yeah. Life. yeah. <laughs> that, that, I, I I found that so interesting that the studio mandated them to change the question mark in the end credits, but not the opening credits. Yeah, yeah, that that is fascinating. I'm glad you glad you brought that up. Yeah, because you think about back then. I mean, something like War of the Worlds that you know became this uh, radio phenomenon with Orson Welles that people you know today. If you heard something weird, you just go on online or you go on Twitter and you'd find out quickly that this is a hoax. But back then <laughs> they didn't. And so, yeah, something like uh, a rumor spreading that they used a real monster in the film could really be they used actually, to their advantage. They actually dug up dead bodies or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. You know, it's almost a better era where you didn't have everything, you know, <laughs> this knowledge immediately in the palm of your hand. So we go back into the movie. How did how did you like Colin Clive? And, and did you think he overacted? Do you think he was perfect for this? How, how did you feel about his performance? I, I would say it's both. Mm-hmm. I think he overacted, but that's what made it perfect. Mm-hmm. Like everyone, everyone thinks about the the scene where the monster is brought to life. Sure. That is hamming it up to the nth degree. Oh, yeah. But it wouldn't have worked any other way. Right. He needs to. He needs to. And this is this is where you really hit the opposite of what I said about Bela Lugosi in Dracula. Mm-hmm. Even though Bela Lugosi was perfect, it wasn't enough to mm-hmm. support that movie. Like we, we talked about when we did the Dracula movie, that movie is boring. That movie it can't, is yeah, flat it can't be. out boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie is the opposite. This movie has my attention from the beginning to the end, from Edward Van Sloan coming out on the stage to the point where the uh, windmill collapses. Mm-hmm. Every single second of this movie has my attention, and that's very, very rare for a movie from this early. Like we had said about a lot of other films I've talked to you about, mm-hmm. a lot of these films at this point were still working out the kinks of what can we do to keep keep the audience's attention on film. People were used to uh, theater performances. People were used to, that's where Dracula, Dracula was a a touring theater performance. And I think that's one of the things that made that movie so boring for a film going audience is that movie was meant for a theater going audience. Mm -hmm. And even then it worked much better for the audience at the time, even the movie going audience, because that movie going audience five years earlier had been a theater going audience, right? So they were used to the beats of that kind of a movie, a movie like Frankenstein. I can't even imagine seeing that in 1931. It would have had to have been absolutely revolutionary and terrifying to have, to have a movie like this, something like this that would shock you and terrify you and keep you at the end of your seat for all 71 minutes, which I cannot imagine would have been very common. Even you look back to something that people reacted to as much as uh, Lon Chaney seniors Phantom of the opera. There are some terrifying parts of that movie, but about 70% of the movie is boring as heck. Yeah, it's long, too. <laughs> it's long, and it's boring because it was meant for a theater-going audience more than a movie-going audience at that time. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine in 1931 that people would have thought about this movie to have the pace that it has and set the kind of tone that it does from the very beginning breaking the fourth wall with Heather Van Sloan coming out on stage. Mm-hmm. People knew him as Van Helsing from Dracula. Right. That had come out earlier in the year. People knew him coming out, giving this monologue about 
mentioning Carl Lemley. People would have known him. He would have been a big name running mm-hmm. this running this film company. Mentioning him by name, giving a warning from Carl Lemley, <laughs> saying all this and then concluding it with "We warned you," right? <laughs> and then launching right in to the graveyard scene. I cannot even imagine seeing this in the theaters in 1931. What people would be thinking? Oh yeah, and even the the graveyard scene now is still pretty yeah. jarring. It's really dark. I, it's great. I love it. I mean, I love I mean, that. The, the, yeah. yeah, and then you compare the graveyard scene from this to Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and you have very similar feels. But then in Bride, you also get a lot of the religious references that people yep. kind of pushed back against. Right. And you actually get a little bit of that in this film, but not nearly as much as you'd get in Bride. I think James Whale especially really was trying to push the envelope yeah. in terms of what he could get away with at this time mm-hmm. in showing which, like we had said, was why there was stuff that ended up being cut when the Hays Code dropped. And the other thing, kind of going a little bit back to Dracula, that had something against it was the lack of score. And we had mentioned that, too, where yes. I, um, Frankenstein didn't seem to suffer from that either. No, and that's that was something that I found so interesting was, even though neither of these movies have a score, mm-hmm. Frankenstein, you never notice that. No. There is, there is hardly ever a silent moment in Frankenstein. There is always something going on. Either you're entranced by the movement of the characters or Mm -hmm. their faces or the monster or anything going on or the dialogue or whatever it may be, the sound of the uh, lab equipment or anything going on. There is always something to keep your attention. In Dracula, like we mentioned, there are minutes going by in that movie where there is nothing. That's right. And like like I had mentioned in the Dracula review, like there's the podcast I listened to. They even they even clipped parts of the movie where they played the audio, and you just heard nothing for minutes on end. Especially the scene where Dracula is introduced to Renfield, mm-hmm. just silence. And it's kind of funny where you go something from something like that, something like this in the same year. Neither of them had a score. Dracula suffers for it greatly. This film doesn't. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the lab scene because the lab scene really is when you think of those old, um, you know, laboratory, laboratory type of type of scenes. It all comes back to Frankenstein because this is really what you think of with all the bells and whistles and, you know, all the lasers and the the lightning and everything. It all comes back to this. And I mean, like the set was so revolutionary that they kept Mm -hmm. using the exact same set. Right. They used it for this. They used it for all the sequels. They even they tracked the exact set down in 1974 when Mel Brooks made Young Frankenstein mm. and bought the set from the people who had bought it at an auction when Universal was auctioning it off in the late 40s. That y- The people who made Young Frankenstein bought the exact same equipment because it was that effective. And we'll get it. We got we to gotta talk about Karloff. So the amount of labor it took to put on all of this makeup and all of the, 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 the just the costume. And he actually physically hurt himself because having a, he was carrying Colin Clive up the up the hill in that famous scene. He hurt his back and he was never the same. Um, how did you feel about his performance? Could anyone else have have made the monster? You know what it is, uh, what we think about the monster. Could anybody have been better than Karloff? If anyone else had played the monster in this movie, we would not be talking about this movie right now. Ah, there you go. If if you even just look at the later films in the series once Karloff left, Lon Chaney Jr. has a pretty good job in Ghost, but anything mm-hmm. after that, Bela Lugosi is terrible in Frankenstein <laughs> Meets the Wolfman. Like, 
absolutely atrocious. He never Glenn, respected the monster. <laughs> no, never at all. And the fact that he basically just took it for as a money job. Yep. And and even the fact that it's so funny that Bela Lugosi in 1931 said that the monster was just a lumbering idiot. That's right. But the fact that we don't get the traditional image of Frankenstein with his arms out in front of him lumbering along until Bela Lugosi's portrayal. <laughs> that's good. Really that's interesting. True. Yeah. I'm but, glad you, yeah, that's a great point. And then, then you have Glenn Strange in the two house movies and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yep. He's good, but he's imitating Karloff. That's right. He is, he was hired to be Karloff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he's not Karloff, but he, he does it. He does Faithfully. a serviceable job. Yeah. He's a, he, he's a faithful imitation. Yeah. But the fact that when everyone from people my age to people my grandparents' age think of Frankenstein, they think of Karloff. Absolutely. That says something. Yeah. And like I, mean, I said, if it hadn't yeah. been Karloff, we would never be talking about this movie. Today. That's right. And, and you and actually to, to to give kudos to Bela Lugosi, I mean, say his is Dracula. Nobody yes. was better than Dracula than, yeah. than Bela Lugosi. I guess if, we, if we're going to do, because everyone loves Kiss, I guess uh, Glenn Strange was the Tommy Thayer of, yes. uh, of Frankenstein. Okay, <laughs> no, good. That's not, that's, not giving, that's not giving Glenn Strange enough credit. <laughs> no, that's a good point. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll get more into it. What, what are some of your other notes, your takeaways, um, you know, of, of the original Frankenstein? Just the cast is... Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. And I mean, the amount of sort of rollover you have from Dracula earlier in the year, you have Edward Van Sloan and you have Dwight Fry. And the fact that they can keep you in those characters so differently, especially Dwight Fry. Dwight yeah. Fry could play anybody and oh. I totally believe it. Yeah. Because Renfield is different from Fritz, is different from anything else that Dwight Fry played. And he was in so many of these Universal. He was in probably the, all like the first half of all the Universal movies. Yeah, you're right. Playing completely different characters. Um, he never got enough credit, I think. No, I mean, and he, I, he I'm was, so glad Alice Cooper did, did a song. Yeah. That's probably how most people know him now. Yeah, and I, th- I think especially when you compare him to Edward Van Sloan, mm-hmm. he's practically playing Van Helsing again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's he's pretty, no different. Pretty much just Van Helsing again. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. Yeah, totally. Almost, almost every role... Edward Van Sloan played after Van Helsing it was just him playing Van Helsing again to the point where when they did uh, Dracula's daughter, he's just like, well, I've been playing it for the last four years. I guess I'll play it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> so would you kind of almost compare the first three Frankenstein movies kind of like Star Wars in a, in a way? If you want to, you know, like uh, Bride is almost like the Empire Strike Back. Honestly, that is a great comparison. I've never heard that before, especially when you compare this movie's the faithful original. Yep. Bride is the middle that got darker and topped it. Yep. And then the third one, they added some comedy and some terrible small actors. Yeah. Yeah. But you got it's still, it's still and you yeah. got the little Frankenstein kid that everyone wants to shoot in the freaking head. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back for this one. So, uh, but yeah, but like, you know, Return of the Jedi is still enjoyable. Son of Frankenstein's really uh, enjoyable and kind of uh, underrated in many ways. But yeah, the, I, I've heard a lot of people just throw Son of Frankenstein under the bus. I'm just like, no, yeah, I get that it might be way too long. It's, it's so long. You go from this movie to 71 minutes. So that one's like an, two and a half hours and it's like whoa yeah it's yeah it's longer I don't fit sure, yeah. two of these movies into that yeah definitely basil rathbone's great in that and of course oh, he is love, he's phenomenal yeah, Lionel Atwell. yeah 
And of course, Young Frankenstein borrowed heavily just because of the Atwell character. The Atwell character and the idea of um, Igor. Igor and the son of Frankenstein. That's right. Or the grandson. People people try to connect them saying that uh, Gene Wilder's character in Young Frankenstein is the little kid in Son of Frankenstein. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Which makes sense, but God, I don't think Gene Wilder would be that annoying as a kid. No. (laughs) <laughs> though gene wilder if we want to go off on tangent man did he 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 would go for it on time like look at the producers how much he yells he yells a lot in movies and and then in young frankenstein him shouting about how i am a frankenstein and right oh i love that movie though <laughs> i know i can't wait till we get to that but yeah so again final thoughts for the original frankenstein one of my favorites i mean if if i were to rank this in both the Universal and the Frankenstein series within the Universal, it's very highly on both. I'd say this is probably my second favorite Frankenstein movie, mm-hmm. and it's probably in my top five or at lowest top seven Universal movies. Mm. Yeah, I think this one absolutely stands the test of time. I think sometimes it almost gets overlooked because of uh, you know how how iconic Bride of Frankenstein is, but yeah, definitely. Um, it shouldn't be forgotten. And if you've never seen them, definitely watch them in order. Because I think yes. if you if you watch Bride first, then go back, you won't appreciate fr- the original Frankenstein as much. Yeah, I think the same. And even then, you look at films from Universal that came out in 1931. Oh, yeah. There's three huge films that came out in 1931. Mm-hmm. you got Dracula, you got this, and then you've got the amazingly underrated Invisible Man. Absolutely. That came out in 1931. Mm-hmm. Just... And the fact that James Whale directed two of those three. Yeah. God, I wish he would have directed the third. It would have made Dracula so much better. <laughs> oh, I agree. I, I would agree. Take, I would take James Whale over Todd Browning any day. <laughs> now, how did you, we'll, we'll kind of go a little bit. Uh, how did you like Todd, Todd Browning with uh, Freaks? Definitely his masterpiece, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Because Dracula, to be honest, isn't very much to look at. It mm-hmm. is, It is stock and cut from the beginning to the end. Oh, yeah. It is... That movie lives and dies by Bela Lugosi. If sure. it weren't for Bela Lugosi, like I said about Boris Karloff, mm-hmm. if it weren't for Bela Lugosi, Dracula wouldn't be anything. Nope. And like, like, I, like I said about some other movies we've talked about, if it weren't for Bela Lugosi, there was a lot I would fast forward through in that movie. <laughs> um, well, and, 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 uh, and Dwight Fry, I think Dwight and Fry. Dwight Fry, Dwight Fry yeah. absolutely. And like I said about him earlier, he makes almost every scene he's in in any movie. And the fact that he was cut from some of the later Frankenstein sequels really, really makes me upset because yeah. I would love to see what he would have contributed to Sun or to mm-hmm. Ghost when his scenes were cut. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. Well, whenever we do the next Universal Horror Film, you are going to be first in line. And I can't thank you enough. Your insights are always top notch. And thank you again, Joseph. Thank you, Brian, for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right. I love back all-time guests and uh malin was here from the beginning and and i love that he he returns because we're going to talk about one of his passions and that's the universal monster movies and arguably one of the best and most beloved uh monsters is of course frankenstein and we're going to talk about the original from 1931 uh welcome back malin hey brian thanks for having me back no problem. And so we talked about Dracula probably about a year ago. And so the next in order was Frankenstein. And uh, so before we actually get into this film, when you first saw these uh, Frankenstein movies, and I'm assuming you've seen all of the sequels. Did you watch them in order? Like, did you actually see the 1931 version, then go to Bride? Or how, how did you originally oh, see Oh, gosh. Them? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the way that I saw them, as you know, 
was like Saturday matinees on <laughs> television. Like right. there were the creature features. Uh, like every every Saturday, I made sure to watch my cartoons, and then you know, creature feature would come on at like either eleven or twelve in the afternoon, right? Or early afternoon, um, and that's how I saw them. But you know, I didn't realize that they were a series at first because I was very young. Um, mm-hmm. I I must have been a like at least five because my lunchbox for kindergarten was universal monsters so i know i saw them before then i just don't know i don't know exactly which age and i saw frankenstein before any of the sequels Mm -hmm. but when i saw the sequels it wasn't like i had context i didn't know what order they were supposed to come in okay um i just kind of saw them i know that bride of frankenstein was super memorable Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really loved that one, but I don't have a lot of memory of the others, except for the Abbott and Costello one, which is you know kind of like loosely related to the right. uh, to the canon. Um, but like, uh, how, what is it like, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost yeah. of Frankenstein, and all of that? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't remember those terribly well, and I haven't seen them recently. The ones that I've that I go back to are the original Bride of Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello. Okay. Yeah. So what's, I'm glad you saw them in order because I think a lot of people um, that didn't see them in order kind of disregard the first one because Bride is so good. You know, that's, yeah. the, one that every, that's the one everyone loves. And I, I kind of just came up with this on the fly. I, I had another guest named Joseph Staub who loves the Universal Monsters. And I, I kind of the original Star Wars trilogy is almost like the original Bride of uh, original Frankenstein tr- trilogy. Everyone loves, you know, episode one or episode four uh, Star Wars. And it's kind of like Frankenstein. But then Empire is definitely the best and, and just like yeah. Bride. And then the underrated one really is is Son of Frankenstein uh, and just kind of like Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi is fun. I appreciate it. But everyone goes back to Empire just like Bride. So, sure. um yeah, so I going. Did you ever read the novel like for Mary Shelley's version? I did. I've read it several times. Okay. Um, I read it for the first time, I think, in like junior high school. And my impression of the novel at that time was, I mean, it was horrifying. Um, I it really did have an effect on me. Uh, the descriptions of the monster at, in the early parts of the book were just grotesque. They did make my stomach churn mm. at that age. It was I, I just I remember the image of the thin being of the skin being so thin that uh, Frankenstein could see through it and and all of that. And it was, that was really gross. Even now, I get creeped out. Oh yeah, by it. yeah. Um, and, and I I have uh, during all of this. Um, when I was when I took my new job and was commuting, I was listening to a lot of audiobooks and I I revisited Frankenstein and Dracula. Um, so I, yeah, I've I've gone back to them a few times. Um, mm-hmm. Both both books, um, I like them both quite a lot. So re, so I'm, I take it you saw the movie before you actually read the book because you saw the movie Absolutely. so young. So yeah, yeah so- I, I I did see the the movie before I read the book, and I remember thinking it had been an when I read the book for the first time, it had been a long time since I saw the movie, so it was a mm-hmm. little bit weird. Like I could tell that it was different, but I hadn't seen the movie in recently enough to know exactly exactly how now okay. i've the most recent time that i've gone through the book was about a year ago mm. and the most my most recent viewing of the movie is like a week ago okay um and, and so i have a much better appreciation for how very different the book and movie are now uh, they're very very different oh totally and and that i mean how amazing she wrote that 
um, at such a young age, and it was just like a, a contest to find out who could scare who, you know? And oh, then, yeah, so great. Absolutely. We should all be so jealous. That, I mean, the the writing is great, mm-hmm. but, you know, above and beyond that, the concepts that that novel delves into in really substantial ways, I'm I'm useless on this planet, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I've done nothing with my life, clearly, it's it's really an impressive piece of work, and it stands up, you know, I, I would argue that both stand up in very different ways, the book stands up as a work of, uh, of philosophy and literature today, right. um, and, and the movie in its own ways definitely stands up uh, in its own place in the horror genre, and science fiction. Oh, absolutely, and and they, the movie is more uh, kind of both Dracula and Frankenstein is based on kind of the pro, the Broadway adaptations, and and that's why I think they both, as you said, stand up on their own because they are pretty much yeah. different. So that's nice. So let's get yeah. into the actual film um, performance wise. Let's start with Colin Clive. How do you how do you feel about him as the maniacal um, scientist? How do I feel about Clive as this? You know, I don't have any beef with him as a scientist. I have to say that. Um, I, I have always been fascinated with the transformation that the actor Boris Karloff makes to the creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I, I think that if I don't have very much to say about Colin Clive as the doctor, it's because maybe other um, other folks stand out a little bit more. Sure. Um, at no, but that's not to say that at any point during the film do I think somebody else would have made a better substitution. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I wish I had more to say about it. But no, do you, do you find him? And I think a lot of us, because we're in modern times now, do you feel that they were almost overacting back then because the film was oh, so cute? A, yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think you've already made the point with, mm-hmm. since these were based on. Um, stage versions of mm-hmm. these stories and really you know films silent films and films up into uh, I, I mean I don't know what the I don't know that there's a natural cutoff but a lot of early films were based on um, stage versions of stories or just stage plays and a mm-hmm. lot, you know you can see that sometimes in the opening credits like, yeah. it, it makes sense that movies were transitioning from literature and from the stage and figuring out how they were different and what they were and there are remnants of that here and in the acting especially you have remnants of both the silent cinema and from the stage so things are still a little bit overacted and i don't fault that at all i mean i i can see that it's it's different but i grew up with it Uh, you know i grew up seeing these films when i was young and, and silent films so i kind of I, I think I was really early adjusted to mm-hmm. those. I didn't understand why it was that way until right. recently. Um, I think it still holds up. I do like him as the doctor. I don't like Kenneth Branagh as the doctor necessarily. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm spoiled by these earlier films that are so stylized in yeah. their set and in their acting. And it's so romantic. It's so gothic. And it's so kind of removed from contemporary life and from real life that it's easy to, you know, no matter how kind of hokey and pokey the acting might seem by today's um, conventions, I kind of like that as a remove. And, you know, it plays off the set design, these kind of um, expressionist accents to the set design. It, it is removed from life. It's it's that removal is meant to kind of mean something. And those kind of more 
melodramatic um, acting styles. Like, uh, I'm I'm okay with it. Yeah, and I think if if more modern audiences would kind of turn off their modern brain and try to go back and and do that, and it's difficult, especially if you're not a film aficionado or a history um, buff or something like that. That it might be sure. might be tougher for them. But yeah, I, I think you know his. You know, when he's saying the creature's alive and how I mean, that's iconic. I mean, just Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's hard to fault. Like if people want to say it's overreacting, I'm fine with it, because I think, you know, if he was just if that was subdued, it wouldn't it wouldn't have much of an impact. No, absolutely not. No, you pull out. Now, that's a That's a great point. That that is a beautiful delivery. Oh. And it is just so it is so emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so just so over the top. It's fucking delicious. It is. It absolutely <laughs> is. Um, okay, so in the other character that I love, and, and I think most people who aren't big uh, Frankenstein fans or only saw young Frankenstein, they always think as the assistant as Igor or Igor, and yeah. uh, they don't realize early on his name was Fritz, and of course played by the great the great uh, Dwight Fry. So how do you feel about him? Um, I absolutely love Dwight Fry. I think um, it's unfortunate that. Maybe he doesn't get as uh, as much celebration as like Boris Karloff and oh, yeah. um, um, and Bella Lugosi, right. but uh, he really stands out in everything um, that I've seen him in. He's uh, just amazing. Um, definitely uh, very stylized acting, um, but uh, absolutely fantastic. And you know, one thing. Now that we're talking about um, Dwight Fry, I haven't yeah. looked this up with Colin Clive, but you know, one thing I just recently uh, discovered because I hadn't looked into the, like the timeline of the sequels until this week, um, but I also looked at the relationship between the filming of like Dracula and this because there are so many crossover actors. Oh yeah, there, there were you know I for some reason I hadn't realized that they were released in the same year. Yeah. And I know that a lot of these universal films, like they shared actors, obviously, because some of them became their own kind of like, uh, franchises. Um, they, they shared sets. They probably shared a lot more than that, that I haven't dug into like set designers, um, studio, uh, spaces and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dwight Fry was very, very notably in both. Right. Um, and not just him, but of course, Edward Van Sloan yep. um, and others as well. And I don't know if in your research uh, you've discovered more than I have about how Frankenstein and Dracula kind of shared cast and sets or, or, well, or whatever. Bella Gosi was offered the role of the monster and he, he poo-pooed it because he, he you know, mm-hmm. he was... He was Dracula, and he he didn't want to be done in made up, you know, makeup. And they famously in the, in the Ed Wood movie, you know, where um, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. He played Karloff in that, where he he just you know someone comes up and, and talks about Lugosi, and he goes off on him. Um, yeah, they always kind of had a weird contentious relationship, and I think um, Lugosi always kind of had an ego about playing the monster. And eventually, he did play not only the monster, he played Igor, and he played all these different yeah, things. Exactly. So I, I think once he realized that Dracula didn't lead him to other things, he kind of he kind of had yeah. Mr. Lugosi, I I know you're very busy, but um, can I have your autograph? Certainly. You know which movie of yours I love, Mr. Lugosi? The Invisible Ray. You were great as Karloff's sidekick. Karloff? Sidekick? Fuck you! 
Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit. That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care. What happened? How dare that asshole bring up Karloff? You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. Bella, I agree 100%. Now, Dracula, that's a role that requires talent. Of course. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the hand. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? Bullshit. I'm ready now. Roll the camera. That's, that's like when, uh, I, I mean, I imagine that's kind of like when you bet on the wrong horse and yeah. then you overcompensate on the next race. Exactly. <laughs> like you bet on everything. <laughs> and, and from all that I've heard, Boris Karloff was always, uh, I've been uh, reading, he was just a, a real gentleman. Like everyone just really liked, he was he was a consummate professional. Whereas Lugosi, I mean, he definitely had his, yeah. his problems later on, you know, whether it be for, with drug abuse and things like that. So um, I think that also probably factored into why Lugosi's career kind of went a certain way and, and Karloff's went the other way. Yeah. But to go back to your original question yeah, about sure. White Fry, um, mm-hmm. I absolutely love him in this. I think he stands out a lot more in Dracula. Yeah, um, absolutely. And then Edward Van Sloan pretty much plays Van Helsing again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the one thing that I noticed the most is uh, so in the in the departures from the book, it seems like they've really uh, fallen back on some conventions that they were already really familiar with and comfortable with going back to Dracula with the casting, but also going back to like Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. Um, in the conventional kind of like the villagers with torches ending. Like uh, each of those three movies arguably ends pretty much the same way. Yeah. Um, it's just that you've got uh, the Phantom is thrown into the Seine, uh, the Hunchback is chased down by villagers with torches and there's a cathedral ending and then here in frankenstein you have the windmill but for all intents and purposes they fall back on the same ending yeah um that's in this case is nothing like the book when you first saw this did you see the censored version because for years they cut out a lot of the scene with the little girl no i'd imagine i imagine um i must I'm I'm pretty sure that I saw the censored version when I first saw it. Okay. Um, I've seen the uncensored version since then, but um, I remember. I, I'm pretty. It, it's hard because it's been a long time. Um, I think that I I'm pretty sure I saw the censored version because this would have been in like 19, like 80. Mm-hmm. on television oh wow um, okay. and i don't know when like this uncensored version got wider distribution i believe it was after that yeah it was the late um, 80s i believe so yeah so yeah. then I, I the reason that i do remember is when i was a kid after having seen these uh when i went to the public library i was obsessed with like a few different books uh and one of them was this um book about universal monsters and mm-hmm. um how to do the makeup at home for like halloween and whatnot oh cool um yeah and i i, I remember that um not that book but another book um uh, had mentioned that that had been edited, and mm. I was I was surprised by that because I I don't think I'd seen it at that point. Thought, oh wow, mm. that that sounds so horrible. But now you watch it and you see, oh well, the the uncensored version does include this really tragic um, killing yeah. of the girl. But you know the where the book hinges on a very different death that's not included uh, here at all. And, you know, which is an interesting choice because it seems like, uh, 
if you're if you're going to go if at that point in film history you're going to go so far as to kill a child and have that be really shocking um I'm surprised that Elizabeth made it through the film. Yeah, and then that's inter- that's a great point. I think it's, it's weird what they they would go for back then. Like they would have no problems in those early films killing animals and children. And today it's completely the opposite. <laughs> you know, like yeah, you just don't yeah. go there unless you really want to uh, make a statement. It's exactly. It's like when you, uh, it, you know, it seems like um, yeah. When I was growing up, uh, at some point. As a gore hound, I realized that there was an unspoken limit that you didn't kill uh, children. Yeah. Um, and then when I did start to see kids get killed, I thought, oh, that's so shocking. Mm-hmm. But really, it's 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 just kind of going full circle. It's that taboo had been established, right. probably post-code at some point. Um, and then, uh, you know, it became like a new barrier to kind of cross and it's not something that i think even today gets crossed without some amount of kind of deliberate um action on the the screenwriters and the director's part yeah it it still seems a little taboo right or there's some subterfuge where you think they're dead but they're really not type of thing so right they kind of go there try to do a gotcha uh so you just recently rewatched the movie what stood out this time because you've seen this countless times so anything new that stood out to you watching it again more more recently yeah that's a good question i think that with my viewing this time um the things that stood out to me the most are pretty much the things i've already mentioned uh (laughs) Differences in the book and the uncensored version, um, the conventional for that time ending, those things kind of stood out to me a little bit more. And it's because I did that rereading of the book. So I had that as a more recent filter. Mm-hmm. Um, the one other thing that I haven't mentioned that did stand out to me is, and I don't know why this is really, um, maybe it's because of my rereading of the book, Boris Karloff as a creature didn't come across to me as much as a sympathetic creature as he did in the past. And I don't know why, Hmm. Um, because like in the, in the scene with the girl, Mm -hmm. like I usually, I really get that he's, he's not maliciously murdering her, No, but I think there's some inconsistencies in how that's treated. Right. So at the first, in the, earlier part of the movie it's established that it's a criminal brain that was stolen and uh there is some setup that the monster is going to be irrational and unruly and just going to be like a holy terror because it's not going to be it doesn't have a rational brain um and is going to be inclined towards like criminal activity and violence Mm -hmm. and then you have this tender moment what starts off as a tender moment with the girl and i think that kind of surprised me it seems like a a change in direction and it's only like after that that point that it seems like um kind of a sympathetic character and i i didn't follow that transition this time Hmm, interesting Um, so i think i probably have to watch it again because that's very different from my previous viewings yeah, and and then we could get into actually Karloff's performance. I mean, he he really he sacrificed his body for this film. He hurt his back, which was never the same uh, during the scenes uh, carrying Colin Clive up the hill um, oh. to to the windmill. So, um, could anyone else have pulled off the monster like Karloff? I, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? No, I don't think so. I think that we're we're very fortunate that uh, Bella Lugosi. 
yeah. um, made his mark as Dracula yes. in a role that is it's it's impossible to think of anyone else playing that role. And similarly, with Karloff in this, um, with his height, with his slenderness, with uh, I, I think that plays into the makeup. And when we see later in uh, Lugosi's career, him taking on the role of um, the creature. Um, I mean, anytime anyone stepped in as the creature in a later film, there's a noticeable absence. Oh, yeah. A really noticeable absence. Um, so, no, I can't imagine anyone else playing that role. Mm-hmm. And, my, I mean, and, and my, who else would have? Like, yeah. It, yeah. And my last guest had a good point. When Glenn Strange came in and he, he did mm-hmm. some of the sequels, and of course he did Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, he was basically playing Karloff. So it was just kind of, you know, going back to the best. Yes. Um, but he was copying the the model uh, set by Karloff. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. They, they, do, they went uh, as far as they could, uh, it seems, to, um, to make it seem as a, a, an organic extension of Karloff's. Mm-hmm. creature and creation which is an interesting thing to think about because now um in contemporary tv or cinema if you swap out um an actor you do a remake a reboot or you uh mid-season mm-hmm. um or mid-series swap someone out you uh, the uh the creative team seems to really go to some lengths to allow the new actor to create the role anew in you know with their own touches and their own image right um, and that's not what was happening with glenn strange and i think that's a testament to boris karloff's impact on um on that role absolutely absolutely so any final thoughts just after after all this oh gosh no okay. <laughs> <laughs> i i you know i i guess i don't not that i not that i haven't already mentioned it's just um it's a, it's an, it's just an amazing movie, and um, I guess one thing that we haven't, uh, that I mentioned a little bit that we haven't talked about too much, is just that um, the things that I do still to this day appreciate very, very much about the Universal horror films is, um, is the kind of the the expressionist um, accents to the set work that create right. a uh, create a kind of this really gothic romantic feeling of unreality and uh kind of uh maybe a not just a supernatural but like a subconscious horror um and i really appreciate that that's present in those works it's very clever uh one in frank well in dracula you you see those in the crypt and in the interiors of the castle um and it it creates these scenes that seem very otherworldly and it's so easy to suspend disbelief i think in um frankenstein where you see it is in frankenstein's uh in the laboratory yeah which is just so can't be topped it's so amazing it's so unrealistic but it's so believable like all of the scientific uh instruments those are all based in real life and it looks like this could be legit but then you have like if if you don't believe it for a second then you have this outrageously expressionist um kind of uh the castle walls and um uh uh and walkway ways that kind of seal the deal so disbelief is just swallowed up by these expressionist sets and then on a a smaller scale um frankenstein the creature's cell um 
it, it's just a small set piece, but the the back wall of it has this forced perspective. You know, it disappears into the distance and it twists in this all partially spiral motion that really speaks to German expressionism. Yeah, um, and is really kind of beautiful. And it says, I think, a lot about the creatures disoriented experience coming into this world, not knowing what it is or what anything is, and us not knowing that either. I think that's a, a beautiful touch. And then finally the um, the the windmill up yeah. on the hill where mm-hmm. everything uh, ends. It's a, it's, a, it's a gorgeous set piece. And the final shot of the windmill uh, burning on the hilltop, I mean, it's obviously a model, but oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's really beautiful. I think it's gorgeously executed. So any, any any um, any arguments that I might have about the film version not plumbing the philosophical or existential depths that the book does, um, I think are, are made up in some of those design choices that they made. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you brought up the 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 sets because there really are the blueprint, especially the, the laboratory. Uh, that that was totally. I mean, every other movie when there's a lab scene, they basically you know yeah. uh, copy that. And I also I want to bring up the beginning with the the graveyard scene. That was it's still super creepy with all that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you see a yeah, guy I'm... hanging in the background. Yeah, it's it's yeah. crazy. It's you know it's gorgeous as in its own very macabre way. Oh yeah, but uh, you know it also goes back to you know I. I was focused a little bit um, on the death of the girl because that's it's shocking even today. But uh, well, during those early scenes, uh, you know, during this recent rewatching, I was thinking, gosh, that's I'm surprised that that wasn't more shocking for audiences to talk about like brains and to see brains and bottles and jars and all of that. And then, um, and and then I, uh, when I was looking at some of the history of the the film's release, I saw that, uh, in some areas it was really heavily censored, even more so than just removing the death of the girl and some other things. But, uh, I guess in Kansas, nearly half the film was proposed to be cut and that was, I think I guess to this not. to this day I think it's still cut. So there you go. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to offend everyone from Kansas, but we had to throw that in there. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for doing this, Maylin. And anytime there's a Universal horror film, I know who to go to. Absolutely, anytime. Glad to. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com. <laughs>